0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Welcome to the holiday edition of Lives Radio Show. Although impossible to capture the full spectrum of this last year's guests, in this show, I shall reflect back on just a few of the many highlights from the past year we'll hear guests talk about tolerance and acceptance and the work they're doing to better our world and to help each of us be a little kinder we'll hear guests touch on issues of faith and its practice and some artists from this past year will discuss the nature of art and the practicalities of being an artist and of course having enjoyed several shows featuring talented musicians we shall hear from them including some of the music they performed live in the studio Let's start, though, with food and drink. In March, I spoke with coffee shop owner Isaiah Shees, who opened Archetype Coffee in 2014 and a second location earlier this year. Isaiah had competed in a national coffee competition in Seattle, and I asked him to talk about one stage of that competition: the signature drink.
1: Uh, it's the hardest. It's the hardest part of the competition, just to make the coffee balance has to be balanced. It usually has to be coffee forward has been the the thing. And so they're always pretty uh, interesting. So, this one basically, mine was two parts. Each place setting for the judges had a tea kettle in it, and then with hot water. And then there were four vials that I had four different ingredients. And so, in the beginning, I instructed the judges to take the lid off the teapot and then pick up each vial, smell the vial, what's in it, and then empty the contents into the teapot. So, there were blood orange bitters, huacatai, which is like a Peruvian black mint that's kind of like uh, citrus hops, whole. Um, basil known as Tulsi, which this one kind of tasted like uh, Concord grape candy. And then the last one was seedlip 94, which is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit made of cardamom, um, cinnamon cloves, grapefruit, oak, lemon, And so I had them put in the tea kettle, and then I went and did pull the espressos and did that. And then I came back, and then I added dry ice to each one of their teapots and put the lid on it. And what that did was it vaporized all of those things in there. And so there's this vapor coming out the spout of the teapot. And then I pulled the shots of espresso, and I added a wakatai and holy basil simple syrup, um, some seed lip 94, and I stirred that all up. And then you pour that into their drink and you set it right underneath that tea spout and that vapor would fall into the teacup as they bring it to their mouth there's still vapor in the cup and right when you get to drink that vapor like hits you in the face so the aroma of the coffee and then the drink so pretty involved it's called smoke and mirrors
0: chef and restaurant owner paul kulik is a well-known figure on the food culture scene In our chat, he decried those Frankensteins of food production.
2: You know, like the list of all the weird chemicals that scientists deliberately put in food to help give you that bliss point, that mixture of fat and sweet and salty that make make your belly go, oh yeah.
0: The business of restaurants is not easy, especially for those behind the scenes, working at creating and serving the meal.
2: There are people who care an enormous amount for your dining experience. I mean, some of it's like caricatured, like, uh, you know, Bourdain kind of caricatures it and a bunch of 22-year-olds like to caricature it and Instagram likes to caricature it. But it's really being hard, actually. And it's really hard to do when you get older and you have a family and you have relationships and the money sucks and the timing sucks and the work sucks and it's death to your body. And that's real and that's not fake. The stress is outrageous. It's stupid. I remember one of the first days of service, like first actual days where I was in a kitchen cooking and we're sitting there and it's a lunch service. I don't even know how many covers we did. Like people are freaking out. It's like, ah, it's this big mess. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm like, it's lunch. It's like lunch. This isn't like battlefield triage. This is lunch. And it's so weird. I mean, I'm sure now when I have new people come into the kitchen and they, they experience that for the first time, the kind of the thrill of the rush of service, because there actually is a lot at stake. If you care, if you're in the kitchen and you care, if you're in the kind of behind the scenes, you're working like extremely hard. We were having a conversation beforehand just about how hard you work to make it look like you don't work hard. And that all this stuff happened without there being a bunch of sacrifice to make happen. Right, your experience. It's a really long answer.
0: Given that you've painted such a dark, <laughs> dismaying, depressing picture of being a chef and running a restaurant as a business. I mean, obviously I have to ask, why would you bother?
3: Yeah,
2: in part, it's short answer. You get into restaurants because you get the thrill, the rush, right? There's Because all that tension and all that stress has, you know, there's like this There's this adrenaline kick. A good busy service is just like a thrill. Okay, you want to extend that over six months to a year? Open a restaurant because it's and you're not sleeping and it's never, you know. So there is a juice that you get from that. that's a huge part of it.
0: Omaha might lack a full and vibrant ecosystem of cultural criticism. But we are fortunate to have Sarah baker Hansen as a food critic at the Omaha World Herald. Together with her partner, Matthew, a columnist also at the Omaha World Herald, we sat down and spoke in May. Complimenting Paul Kulik's comments that Omaha needs to, and is, expanding its cultural tastes around food, Sarah explained how she got into the field of food criticism.
4: People always ask me how I became a food critic and I like food a lot, but I, my main interest in kind of how I first came to it was that I was really interested in the role of a critic and I spent a lot of time studying art history that was my um, emphasis of my degree when I was at UNL in Lincoln and um, spent a lot of time looking at visual art wrote about visual art critically for a decade before I ever worked at the World Herald and the World Herald then you know gave me this opportunity to to try my hand at food criticism and I your question about how I was raised, I like to sometimes think back on when I was a kid, my parents would throw these great dinner parties. You know, they were really into food long before that was trendy or there was a food network. And so one of the biggest treats of my childhood is I would get to stay up late and try all of the fancy um, 80s, trendy foods that my parents would make. So I had chicken liver pate, I had chocolate mousse, I had all these like amazing cheese plates and, you know, soufflés and all this food when I was a kid. And so um, that I think really kind of shaped me in a way that I that I realize now that I maybe didn't then. Um, I also got to pick any fancy restaurant I wanted to go to in Omaha after my dance recitals when I was a kid. So that also um, was a kind of a formative experience of learning a lot about food as a kid. Um, And so my parents had a big hand in turning me into an adventurous eater.
0: One of the distinct pleasures of this last year has been the variety of musical guests that have joined me not only in conversation, but who have also performed our own Tiny Desk Concerts live in the studio. I'll look back on some of them during today's show, starting now with Laura Burren of The Minor Birds. I asked her about her new album, Be Here Now, and commented on how much it seems she had carried who she was and how she felt into that collection of songs, especially Golden Age.
5: It's funny, that was one of the songs that I definitely wanted to play today. It was Golden Age. Um, And this always happens. You write a record, and as time passes, you sort of realize, like, what was the central theme. And that definitely was. And I feel like, um, you know, you hear a little bit of my zen in there. And you hear a little bit of um, what I feel like happened to so many people over the past two years specifically, is that a lot of people who said, oh, I'm, I'm a peacemaker, I'm a peacekeeper, a lot of people realize they're peace fighters, right? So there are certain things that you want to be zen about, that you want to be um, nonviolent about, You know, like sitting here in the Malcolm X Center and, and, and thinking about um, his approach to civil rights versus Martin Luther King's nonviolent approach and how that conversation eventually worked it out between the two men over time. And uh, on the American political stage, and social stage is fascinating to me. And I found myself even over the past two years, and I think a lot of people did, saying like, why would I not stand up? Why would I not punch a Nazi? Why would I not, you know, we saw what Hitler did when nobody stood up. And why would I not do that? And if I see someone harassing, shaming, putting my trans, black, other minority, Muslim friends of, you know, why would I just stand by and do nothing? So the question is, what is the doing that we can do that actually does the most good? And I I think that we're in that state right now where it's hard to know, right? Because sometimes we need to put our foot down and say, absolutely no more. But the urge is to want to put your foot down on someone's throat (laughs) because you want them to stop saying what they're saying and also just like, just stop, you know? Um, But the question really as Pema Chodron and like any of the Zen teachers would say is, is that really going to stop the fighting? Is it really going to stop the anger, the hate? Does it really stop the cycle?
0: Did you want to um, sing Golden Age?
5: Yeah,
6: I would love to.
0: Great. Thank you. We'd love that.
6: Okay. Can
7: you show me a good trick? Show me some magic? Can you pull the whole world from my ear? I hate how the best things keep disappearing like Leonard and Bowie and the ice caps here. And we're left with this Ignorant bliss When we find a good thing We can't hold on to it The golden age It sure was great The sun was so pretty We couldn't look away Now I can't see my brother my sister or mother Through the rose-colored glasses Of my own newsfeed And the sermon I'm given In this new algorithm It's falling on deaf ears Cause the choir already believes Tell me where are our her heroes Are they stuck at the wall Cause we got some real villains to stop before they kill us all. The golden age, it's ours to save. I hear the bells ringing. Are you You show me your best trick Your slick brand of magic Your pen's not a wand To make us disappear I see what you're doing With the Jews and the Muslims You're sawing us all in half With your fake fear My heart's full of love and all kinds of peace But I think even I could punch a Nazi in the face The golden age It goes away when we just stand here with our hands up begging don't shoot, please I'm sure Mars is nice And I do love the moon But this is my home And I'm not leaving Any time soon So call if you need me And I promise I'm there With a thermos of coffee And cups to share I'll be out on my island until the dawn breaks Hanging out with the night watch My lamp raised
0: Laura talked about being a peace fighter and there were many guests last year that evidenced their ethos as they endeavored to do good in and for our world and our workplaces. One such guest was diversity and inclusion expert and former Marine, Joe Gersten Joe's initial encounters with corporate America, he summarized this way.
8: Very shortly after getting into that first corporate role, I was kind of looking around saying, this is insanity. And then I came to the conclusion that it was probably just that company. Uh, and I went to work for another company and you know, shenanigans and strangeness.
0: Joe's professional work focuses on diversity and inclusion.
8: Alas, despite his popularity in business, it is poorly understood. Um, inclusion is maybe one of the most popular words in the workplace right now. In most organizations, I can ask 10 leaders at random what inclusion is, why it's valuable, and how we capture that value. And I will probably get 10 different answers. Seven or eight of them won't even make any sense. Diversity and inclusion are both big complex topics. The words can mean different things to different people, but I think for an organization or a team to do some real work and have actionable conversations, they've got to have a common language. And so I always spend a little bit of time talking about language, not Uh, in the hopes of giving people language, but just letting them know how I use the words and why to inform their own thinking. In my experience, most people haven't stopped to think about specifically what they mean when they say those words or why they mean that particular thing. Uh, As far as the word diversity goes, I like my definitions very simple. When I look that word up in the dictionary, it tells me that the word means difference. And so that is specifically what I mean when I use the word diversity, I mean difference Uh, and difference takes a lot of different forms Uh, Um, And and not all of those forms are equal, but they are the same kinds of things. They are forms of difference. Um, And I think that One of the reasons why our conversations around things like race and gender and orientation continue to be as difficult as they are is because I don't think we have a good understanding for how difference impacts us. Um, And I use the word inclusion in a couple of ways. I use the word inclusion to talk about the work of inclusion, um, and that is largely looking for identifying and removing barriers to participation and belonging. Uh, for a team or an organization or a community. Um, And then I also use the word in talking about what is the experience of being included. So there's the active work of inclusion. There's also the experience of being included. What does it feel like and look like and sound like to be or to feel fully included in a group or a team or an organization? And again, they can mean different things to different people. That's generally how I use the words.
0: Joe talked about inclusion as identifying and removing barriers to participation and belonging. My guests, Ross and Karen Peshek, spoke with me in December and shared their personal immigrant stories, including experiencing what it feels like to be an immigrant who does not speak the language of the country, is hindered from working, and lacks understanding of society's norms. They founded the True Potential Scholarship, a scholarship program for dreamers under the DACA program, and they work at their law firm, offering legal services to undocumented residents and others. I asked them about the potential ending of the DACA program and the tone of our current discourse about immigrants and other nationalities.
9: This question kind of comes a little bit more directly to me, I think, because I'm also, I'm representing immigrants in immigration court, right? And I am representing immigrants in federal courts and uh, Fighting as hard as I can against these federal policies that, to me, I just deeply disagree with. I guess the way, you know, I guess after all the things that have been going on in the last few years, including Karen and I being subject to personal insults in the street, you know, with racial slurs that had never happened in Nebraska prior, hate mail uh, for running the program, Uh, stuff like that had never happened to me. Uh, I mean, it's hard because it's my home state, you know, to have people uh, behave that way, I guess. But at the end of the day, I guess I just try and and I'm not trying to this isn't, I hope This doesn't sound too uh, like uh, lofty, but I just you know, we have to act on the basis of compassion towards the people in front of us. You know, whether it's a True Potential student, I'm trying to help them achieve, you know, the the name of the program, The True Potential. We're trying to help uncover those people's true potential. I think, as a Nebraskan, I think that's best for Nebraska. Anybody in our community that is growing and, uh, you know, able to, you know, allow their talents to express themselves in our community is much better than somebody who has been, had their thumb put on them, told they don't belong, not allowed to participate, that creates a negative cycle, but the same thing with all of these other things that are going on, you know, uh, in our court system here locally. If I'm talking to a judge, I'm just trying to be the voice of compassion and and I would say reason. But then, you know, you're asking about the caravans. The caravans is all the way down in Tijuana. You know, it's on the southern border. Now it involves the you know the military. And now we were just talking about now Is the Mexicans are treating the Central Americans the same way that we are treating the Mexicans here. So there's just all of these, you know, forces out there. And I guess all I figure I can do is just, you know, be cool to the people who are in front of me.
10: Um, You know, I was very sad and disappointed uh, just last week before Thanksgiving when the news started to uh, tell the story of. Mexican nationals in Mexico being very racist towards the Caravan individuals come from they come from Honduras and El Salvador, I believe. I don't know. Guatemala. They're from Guatemala. So I was just heartbroken. I felt that we are here in the United States fighting against all of these prejudgments and all of these, um, you know, forces of trying to portray the entire Mexican community as rapists and vandals and whatever, drug dealers. And uh, it was very disappointing to me to see those reports, those videos of Mexicans um, mistreating uh, the caravan people, a lot of uh, nationalists, uh, you know, screams and motos out on the street and it was so deeply he broke my heart. And I was telling Ross, you know, I feel that we're doing everything we can over here. And then a few people say something down there and it becomes this thing where uh now we're giving the racist people over here in the United States a reason to say, look, the Mexicans, they don't even want the caravan people, you know, and it's. I think that it it comes down to uh, human nature. It doesn't matter if you're Mexican or American or Guatemalan. It's human nature. There's always going to be a few people that cannot have compassion towards their neighbor, towards the people in front of them, and it is up to the rest of us to not generalize that um, you know the the outspoken ones are usually the ones that are you know they're just they are just wrong they're wrong <laughs> and we cannot let we cannot generalize
9: can I want to say this because I think you know when you, you asked about like all right so what does it tell us about humanity you know and I think, what she's saying about not generalizing, I would take it as just slightly different direction and just say, if there are people who are going to be vessels for these ideas, right, these ideas of negativity, uh, putting other people down, of, of blowing up small distinctions, not recognizing the fundamental nature of human beings that's very similar, I think, at the end of the day, then all right those people are going to be vessels for that but i have to be vessels for the opposite i have to be a conduit for positive you know thoughts i have to be a conduit for compassion hopefully honesty and you know all of those qualities
0: in february omaha's police chief todd schmatterer spoke with me about a broad range of community issues through the lens of law enforcement i asked him about the impact of the black lives matter movement and the administration's increasingly hostile attitude towards Muslims, refugees, undocumented residents, and sanctuary cities.
11: The Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter piece, obviously it played out across everybody's TV sets in 2014, 2015, that policing had a ways to come. And if you go back in time and look at where we're at now across the nation, policing's improved policing has improved, and some of the things that have advanced were because of that movement. So good came of that. And and I, I would say that during that time period, everybody, things are, good things will come of this. Sure, the pendulum will swing too far sometimes, but at the end of the day, some good's going to come out of this. And some good came out of it nationally, some good came out of it locally. The one thing that we noted here locally is some of the issues and some of the, the policing procedures and tactics that we were witnessing across the country as new and novel. And this is what we're going to do in the face of this controversy. Omaha has been doing for 10 years, well before I was even chief. So we felt very confident in, in what we did. Yet yeah, we still wanted to tweak. We still wanted to move forward and, and try to advance. And then the president came out with his 21 point President Obama came out with his 21-point plan to policing, and of course, as as astute commanders within the police department, we went through that line by line, and we checked it out, and we, we had about 20 out of 21 right then and there. So we felt that our progress superseded and came before the national wave. The reason it came before is we had an issue here in Omaha that took place in March of 2013, in which we had ultimately culminated in six police officers being fired. And that incident there was a breaking point for the Omaha Police Department. And the breaking point would be, turned out to be a very positive event. Stemmed from a very negative event, it turned into a great positive. For one, the community got to see that, that I was supportive of the community, and we were going to carry a professional line with our Omaha Police Department, but it did something else. It showed... And sent a message to all law enforcement officers in Omaha that there's a right professional way to do things and that's where we're going to be. And Stuart, when we talk about progress, I recall that moment in time. It was a very lonely moment for me as chief, as you might imagine. And when the community came out and supported what I did, I didn't feel so lonely anymore. And the, the sentiment amongst the rank and file was, I'm not so sure they cared for me too much after that. But you know what the sentiment is now? When somebody gets terminated, the officers look at each other. Well, that's not how we act. So that's progression. That's progression towards professional policing with a staff that's that's truly amazing. We got a lot of talent in the Omaha Police Department, so we were able to pull it off for that reason. And that that mindset shift and that all of that took place in Omaha before the national movement occurred. So we implemented many of the things that the national movement was pushing upon police departments to implement it. We implemented it before because we had our own issue to address. So timing helped us on that front. On the immigration issue, it's, it's a very important issue for me because I need the community to come forward and help us solve crimes. I need them to report crimes. I need them to feel safe in this city. And I cannot have somebody that is of immigrant that is an immigrant in our city not coming forward and being victimized and having the police department not know about it. So we, we take the stance as Omaha Police Department is we don't get involved in immigration matters. That's not what we do. We enforce the local and state laws of this, of this state and of this city. And we're not really asking what your immigration status is. Now, there are exceptions to that. If you have somebody that's extremely violent yes, then we'll get we'll get involved in that aspect. But as a general rule, when those officers are going to your house and you want to report a crime, they're not going to ask you what your immigration status is. If we don't do that, Stuart, I have a whole segment of victims that's unreported, and I can't have that. And that's not good for anybody. And, and when you take that a step further, we have a large immigrant and refugee population in Omaha. A lot of refugees are placed here in the city of Omaha from the, from the federal government side, they might be Syrian, they might be Sudanese, they might be Somalian. And imagine you talked earlier about some of your, some of your concern and your fear because you're from, you're from Britain and they don't, the officers there don't always wear guns. Imagine if you came from Sudanese or Somalia and the police were the oppressors, how are you going to acclimate to this country? So one thing that we make sure that we do is when they come to this city, we're part of that committee that shows them what it's like in the city of Omaha and what it's like to live in the United States. And we try to get them to see, when you see this police uniform, you see somebody friendly, not an oppressor. When they pull you over for a traffic stop, they're not shaking you down for $100. When you see this police officer, you can run to them and not from them. And that that mindset and people's experiences and, and the way that they were brought up can shape that. And it's very, very hard to break through that vernacular. But in a lot of ways Omaha has done that and we look to polish this up even more and continue along that front.
0: You know, you touched on something that I hadn't really given too much thought to in in this discussion. But in some ways, Omaha does have a fairly unique situation having a very large refugee population from certain parts of the world. We do. And so I would imagine that places, as you've just been indicating, certain unique pressures on both the mindsets, the skills, and the resources that the department has.
11: Absolutely. And that's something we're happy to, to be associated with, though. We, we don't look at it as a burden. We look at it as an opportunity. We don't question who's brought into our city, we don't really care. Once you come into our city, you're ours. You're part of us and you're family. Whether you're a visitor to Omaha, you live in Omaha, whether you're from this country or not from this country. And that and that's the way we believe. And there, there's a lot of talk about that going across the country right now. And sometimes the national talking points don't always apply to, to local venues and local cities. And here... We, we simply have a, a community policing philosophy and we want to uh, make our city as best we can and, and I am as chief I'm not inclined to be an arm of the immigration enforcement in this country because there are federal government theres a role for them to do that once police departments across this country and I'm a member of the major cities police Chiefs Association and all 50, of the top cities in this country, we all share the same mindset. We've all agreed to this is we, we have to, we have policing to do, not immigration. And the minute we start doing one or the other, it means we're not going to be successful at the other one. And from a, just from a human standpoint, it's, it's our job that we don't want any victims going unreported. We also want to catch those who are perpetrating crimes and we need witnesses, we need the community to come forward and do that. And it wouldn't be very smart of a police chief to damage that, would it?
0: Back to some of the show's musical guests this past year, this time with Clarence Tilton. Here, they explain the origin of the band name and the band logo. Then we'll hear one of the songs that they performed live as part of an acoustic set in the studio.
12: Um, well, the, I, I gotta preface this by saying the hardest thing in the world to do is naming a child. The second one would be naming a band. <laughs> so we went round and round and it was ugly for a while. And at that point, we, uh, just started throwing out names and the one that stuck was the name of our grandfather. <laughs> Who went by Tilly. So we took his actual first name, Clarence, and made it Clarence Tilton. And we are hugely devoted fans of, of Clarence White. And so we like the, uh, we like the, the name Clarence to begin with. So it just felt right. And the band all was like, yep, that's the one, that's the one we want. And so I have to answer to Clarence every once in a while, but it's a, it's a family name. Oh, and so the lighter is his. CTW is Clarence Dilton. On the flip side of that lighter, it says, uh, Casablanca, Casablanca 1942. 1942. So that, that, that was his World War II lighter that he brought back. And it's been encased in our father's like frame up on the wall ever since we were kids. And, and it's just, it's this cool silver metal thing. And as kids, we just wanted to have it forever. And it was like, that's, I don't know that once we figured out the name it was like that's the logo right there so that's uh that's how it ended up but Paul you
3: should probably stand over here too the guitar
9: nice and cool. give us some percussion Jerry Ham bone on the breakdown uh-huh. right? Ham
12: bone yes right mm-hmm. so just <laughs> introduce it don't forget to introduce it
3: um this is a song called first one home uh actually uh Corey and I started this one on a, in a previous band, and it was uh, on a, a sort of a benefit site for Slim Dunlap. And, uh, but Chris also worked on the recording of it, and now we've done another recording that'll go on our next CD. For
12: some greener grass, bell ringing loud and clear, or
3: just clinking of your glass, staring. raise blasts blast to Pouring in way, way, way more than enough. The wheel turns to you again. And for those more inclined to think, the great minds gather around the kitchen. See, raise a blast to the groom, spell on the bride. Bright- that could not wait. Friday lights burning bright, much too bright to see. Raise a glass up to the blue Spill on the bride-to-be.
0: The show this year featured some guests that spoke of issues of faith, including Bud Heckman, the executive director of the Tri-Faith Initiative, and Brother James Dowd, the prior of Incarnation Monastery and the Community of the Benedictine Way. One of my favorite guests was the Reverend Canon Liz Easton. I asked her if, in a society that is drifting from mainstream religion, yet increasingly seeking meaning, whether the people that encountered her were awed by her faith devotion.
6: That's a great way to frame it. And I'm not sure if they are, they haven't said it that way. I think that there, I often say, I said this, especially when I was a parish priest, which parish churches are just run by the devotion of volunteers of people who work a day job and then show up at night and show up early in the morning to like really do the business of the church. And I was always awed by them that like they would leave their corporate work and come and choose to spend their free time, to the ministry of this place that we all loved, So I would always joke and it was only like half a joke that I'm such a bad Christian. They have to pay me to do it because that really is what it looked like. Like i almost every day and this remains to be true. I have to sort of pinch myself and say like you, you lucked out and you need to remember how lucky you are that you get paid to basically explore my faith and love people and um, you know, try to, try to make this thing run <laughs> farther into the future. Like It's just such an incredible gift. So I don't know if people feel a sense of awe of it. I think a lot of our what we imagine we know about clergy of any faith tradition is not necessarily true. And I think that uh, the sort of inherited cultural assumptions about reverence and awe around clergy people is just lost, you know, uh, that has to do with the, of course the scandals of the church over the years the church losing its credibility in lots of ways um and then church attendance is down and i don't know so like you asked me earlier before we were uh, when we were waiting to get started what people think about me wearing a clerical collar and that varies but i think a lot of times people don't know what that is they think it's sort of a fashion choice that i made that day which i always think is more fascinating like what, ask me what kind of person I am that I put a piece of plastic around my neck as a fashion choice. <laughs> that would be more interesting even than being a priest. But So I don't know. I think some of it's lost and people aren't thinking about it at all.
0: I was fortunate to have a number of artists in conversation with me during the year. They included poet Maggie Smith, Bemis residents, German artists Sebastian Hearn and Lisa Horschman, and author David Philip Mullins. Edge work is how Otis 12 described creativity.
4: We used to talk about the creative process. Yes, it's edge work. And the trick in being creative is being right on the edge, teetering a bit. The danger is for artists, a lot of times we fall.
0: (laughs) Art is to express the inexpressible, artist Bill Hoover told me. And the work of an artist is not just dreamy and throwing flowers into the river.
3: There's so much discipline that you have to have. And there's every successful artist I know is all constantly working. They're constantly working and that's then that they love it. I love it. But uh it's not just being dreamy and, you know, kind of throwing flowers into the river Avon. It's it's Showing up every day, whether you feel like it or not, and putting the work in, and, and making um, mistakes, and trying things, and seeing what what is it that you are trying to say, and so yeah, you have to be you have to wear I have to wear a lot of different hats, you know, and I have to d- definitely travel in a lot of different worlds, and and I love that too, you know, because I can kind of be a, an outsider, you know. I think an artist is is an outsider. Part of what they have to be. And if you can if you can be an outsider who people want to have around. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, making art is, is always a mystery. You always think like whenever I read a poem, I'm always waiting for the last line of the poem to figure out what is the point of this. You know, what, is it, what was the poet trying to say? It's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, and I always, you know, for myself, like I would tell my niece Carolyn, you know, I, I hope to have this life until I die and then that will be a life well lived. And that's that's the other term that you hear people say, are you a lifer? Are you a lifer? Which means are you in it for the long haul? To, do, to, to continue making art with grace and imagination and fun and to be a part of a community, that's what it's all about for me.
0: Returning to my musical guests, in July, singer-songwriter Virginia Catherine Gorner brought her unique blend of folk music and celebrated the release of her album Vintage Sepia. Here, Virginia gave me a quick education on her musical style, philosophy and inspirations.
13: When I sit down to write a song, I often find myself kind of mythologizing things in my everyday life, creating fairy tales and, you know, ghost stories out of things that have haunted me or that have kind of followed me out of dreams and into everyday life.
0: I love how you, uh, in your bio, on your website, you talk about ghost stories of the British Isles to trickster spirits and legends of the idealized American past. And it seems like such a really diverse array of inspirations.
13: Yeah. And a lot of that, I think, started with the sounds of the guitar because I found so many parallels with the ways that, you know, British folk fingerstyle guitarists like Bert Yanch and John Renborn played their songs. And then they would borrow these, you know, idealized American stories like Bert Yanch played a lot of American songs. He played a lot of blues songs. And seeing how that was interpreted from one culture to the next has been really interesting.
0: So at this point, it's fair, I think, that anybody that knows me will understand that I'm fairly ignorant about many of the musical descriptions that you're offering us. So you talk about finger style.
13: Oh, yeah. What
0: what does this mean?
13: Well, let me offer a little bit of an example here. (laughs) So uh, here in the studio today, I brought two guitars. Um, Over there, I have my Guild Dreadnought, which has, um, unbeknownst to me, I I have no idea whose signatures those are, but it is decorated with several signatures. And then the guitar in my hands right now, this is a resonator guitar, and it's... um, This one you would more commonly hear in blues or country music and I think you'll kind of hear the difference as I transition from this guitar to the other one There's a sort of a tinny metallic sound the metallic sound to it because this kind of guitar was originally designed um, when guitars were first being brought into bands and they needed a way to project the sound before amplification happened so they designed this resonator that goes on it and that's why it's called the resonator guitar so um, we're talking about finger style, so I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, so a lot of times you hear like the strumming singer-songwriter. So that, that's your strumming technique. But um, finger style means that you're using, um, or at least I'm using my thumb and the uh, first three fingers on my hand. The pinky doesn't really have much to do with it in my playing But um, you're using those fingers to pluck out a tune a little bit more delicately, like this. Yeah, so the thumb kind of makes the bass line and the the fingers kind of make the accompaniment. And especially in a lot of these British fingerstyle guitarists that we're starting to talk about here, um, you'll hear them playing melodies over the bass line like this. So when I was first starting to play guitar and picking out songs to play, you know, I've of course loved pop rock. I would listen to Collective Soul and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and those grunge guitarists in the 90s. Um... So I would listen to those, but I really found myself entranced by um, these folk fingerstyle guitarists because I found them incorporating this uh, transcendental poetry, this transcendentalist poetry into their lyrics. And I loved the way that, you know, uh, songwriters like Nick Drake will incorporate that into the style of playing you know he's singing about a flowing river or autumn leaves and you can hear that in the playing. I think fingerstyle guitar um, gets the lyrics across in a way that maybe strumming isn't quite capable of doing it. So when I'm when I'm starting to conceive a song I always think about the colors that I want to paint with, you know? So if I'm playing a jazz song, I'm probably gonna want a bright, shiny uh, Telecaster or uh, electric hollow body kind of sound. And that's what you hear on the album in a couple of the jazz-oriented tracks, you know, playing bossa nova-influenced things and bringing in a little bit of that classical guitar maybe. Um, So I, I try to use colors that kind of reflect the landscapes that I'm painting with the words.
0: To conclude our highlight show, I can't imagine anyone better than songstress Mary Elizabeth Lawson, who is the heart of and artist behind Mison Jicks. As Mary said and evidenced in her new EP titled In the Middle, Mison Jicks makes music that reminds us to find love in moments of seeming chaos, igniting the fire to fight for freedom and confront life honestly.
14: Um, This song is another little ditty that I haven't recorded and I haven't really worked on with the band yet, but it's called Paris, and it's not anything new-new. It's actually older as well. I thought it would be a good one to do here. It was a summer in Paris I came by myself, you came too, I met you on the corner of Leighton, I bought what I want, you did too, and now I never, never know I never, never, no, I never, never wanna go, no, I never, never, no, I never, never, no, I never, never wanna go, you can meet me at my apartment on Layton, you can bring a friend, I will too i wanna take it down to the movies i wanna take it down to the lake my friend no i never never no i never, never, no, I never, never wanna go. No, I never, never, no, I never, never, no, I never, never wanna go.
0: So I'd like to play us out sure. on the show, yeah, with motion, yeah, from the EP. Awesome. Would that be okay? Of course. And would you just tell us a little bit about the song Motion?
14: Sure. Motion is about the experience of falling in love and the aspirations of being in love for the first time with someone new, um, but also feeling this loyalty and this... Um, sense of future with something new now we we've been on this path I cannot look back granted we could be together for a while longer I know what it is that's got me coming back to you it's though
0: Life's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. been so many wonderful guests this year and too many to include here. You can listen back to the podcast on iTunes and I'd invite you to subscribe to the podcast and hear the amazing guests lined up for 2019. Until then, my best wishes for the new year.
5: Thank you.
8: Did I answer your question? I sorry. That was I got a little rambly there. No, that's great. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you.
1: What was your question?
7: Yeah. <laughs> oh my.
1: Can you edit that out? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I might edit that one. <laughs> uh.
13: Oh, that is out of tune. Sorry. <laughs>
11: <laughs> dude we're real I mean that is our greatest gift and weakness my nose keeps bumping the fuzz man.
14: <laughs>
8: dude you're the one if you're
4: I love something.
6: radio <laughs> cut alright thanks Stuart that was really fun
0: I can't believe our time is
2: up oh yeah I, I think we're gonna be saying
3: that over and over again
0: that's the end of this week's show the magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks I'm your host Stuart Chittenden join me next week for more community conversation and the people that bring community to life